Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So over the years, as I've been working on this project, now and again I've run across uh, mentions of the first ever SMS message or text message that was sent on December 3rd, 1992. It was sent by Neil Papworth, and it said simply, Merry Christmas. It was sent to one of his colleagues at Vodafone at the time, Richard Jarvis. And in all of the articles about this first text message, the sender of that message, Neil Papworth, only got about a sentence or two at best to tell the whole story and give the background on how it came about. So I thought it would be worthwhile to contact Neil and give him the time to tell that whole story for the historical record. And that's what we have today. Neil Papworth with the story of the first ever text message. Neil Papworth, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure. How are you today? I'm doing well. Um, I always like to start with uh, educational background, and you went to um, the University of West London studying computer science, but I see from your CV that you, you right away get into, into gadgetry and things. Like, was it a... Was it software? What was what were you studying specifically? Well, I studied basically. It was like um, an all-encompassing. They called it computer studies back then. When mm. I was uh, when I was actually sixteen, I went to uh, I left school and I went to a college of further education, and they started offering something which in the UK was called an ordinary national diploma, and it was it was in computer studies, and it was that was when I was sixteen. So that was about nineteen eighty six, and this is one of the the first places to kind of offer um, a, a technical qualification like that in computer studies, because you know in the mid '80s, computing was was in its early age, especially for the for the younger masses. Right. Uh, I actually did two years before that. I did this ordinary national diploma, and that allowed me to get into the higher national diploma course, which is which is what I did. And again, they they kind of just labelled it computer studies because back then. There weren't so many specialties as there are today. You know, today you can go and do AI, robotics, like GUI design, mm-hmm. other. You know, there's there's so many branches that have come off of that. You know, back back in those days, you were just kind of working with computers. <laughs> right. you're, you're a programmer or something. They hadn't they hadn't specialized all those things. So when I actually started, when I was 18, I'd actually already been working for two years, kind of at that stage. I'd been um, I've been working some days and some uh, summers and that kind of stuff at this company called Ferranti, which back in those days uh, was like a defense uh, contractor. They did, they did all kinds of other stuff, but I was working on kind of Ministry of Defense projects. And by the time I got to 18, I actually started working full-time for Ferranti, um, and that was, that was basically four days a week. So you worked four days a week, and then one long day a week, you went from like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. I went and did this higher national diploma, and I did that for three years. They used to call it day release. So it actually got you the same qualification as if you spent three years studying full time. Yeah, uh, well, actually it was actually called a college back then before mm-hmm. it became a university. It actually gave, gave you the same qualification, but then you had three years of work experience as well. So I, I, I preferred to pursue that path 
because I could see that when by the time you get to 21, you come out of university, you come out of college, um, the most one of the most desired things that the companies are looking for is work experience, not just, you know, you came out of college and then there's a glut of people that come out during the summer. You know, here's someone who's got the same qualification but also has spent spent three years actually doing stuff, so you're putting it to, uh, to good use uh, in the real world. So that's what I kind of did. And I, I, I was asking for that distinction because, like, at, at Ferranti, you're, you're doing things like working with satellite antennas, uh, software for automated helicopter landing aids. Like, so it, there's, there's a, a, a fair degree of actual electri- electrical engineering mixed in and all this as well? Yeah, so I, I wasn't involved too much in the electrical side of that. Mm, so, okay. Um, but this was, this was kind of embedded, embedded systems, whereas you had like a, a rack that went into a vehicle or went somewhere um, and it was kind of slot-based computers, and when I was uh, writing software for those, we'd end up having to like burn the software onto EEPROM chips and put it onto the actual boards themselves. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was embedded, and it was working with hardware. So, for example, the um, the steerable satellite antenna that was ma- that was mounted on a vehicle, and then. The vehicle would have gyroscopes and magnetometers, which are basically electronic compasses. It kind of almost has like everything's in your cell phone today. And so it can tell when the vehicle, which way it's facing, whether it's bumping, whether it's kind of leaning to the left or the right. And, you know, if you imagine now you were trying to use a satellite dish to watch satellite TV and you had it in a vehicle, if you got a point at that one place in the sky, if you turn left, you'd have to, on the vehicle, you'd have to move the antenna to the right to keep it pointing at the same place in the sky. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much what the, the steerable satellite antenna did. And then when I was working on I was working on the helicopter landing aids, that was that was ultimately gonna be able to put it put something on the back of a ship. So when a helicopter is trying to land on a ship, you know, a helicopter landing on the ground, the ground isn't really going anywhere. It's kind of generally just staying there. But when you're trying to land on a ship, the ship is first often moving forward and then, you know, it's going up and down in the waves and you know, you you don't want to be coming down on a helicopter as the back of the boat is coming up because it's hit a, the front of the boat's gone in a big wave. So you're trying to you're trying to like give the uh, the helicopter an idea of where it is in relation to the landing pads. You know, so the helicopter pilot might be able to see the boat moving, but he's not necessarily sure how high 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 above the deck he is, or whether he's to the left or the right or backwards and forwards. So. That was uh, that was an early part, uh, an early phase of that project, and that was uh, that was really fun as well. That was using um, image processing and triangulation, like two cameras looking at a single a single point and working out how far, how far the helicopter is away. So that was uh, you know that was that was some of my my early life in com- in my uh, computing career. Well, tell me about um, Sema Group Telecoms, which I guess is uh, where you go to work after after graduation. What what are what are they doing, um, and how do you start to get involved with uh, early cellular technology? Well, when I moved to Sema Group, that was that was pretty much almost at the exact same time that I was uh, graduating with my wow. high national diploma. Um, so I moved to Sema Group, and Sema Group back then they were they were one of these big software companies in the UK and France where they had something like 30,000 employees and they they had their fingers in every every pie they did uh defense stuff they did uh, transport they did 
medical, uh, government software, and telecoms was just another just another one of those branches. So I, I, I move into that telecoms area and I start working on um, some of the stuff for mobile phones. And this is, like I said, very early days. Like, is this around the time when uh, GSM is, is first uh, starting to be deployed across Europe? Exactly, yeah. So this was 1991, and certainly in the UK, there were plenty of companies that had cell phone networks running, but they were the old analog technologies. Everyone remembers the, uh, you know, the, the, the sounds of clanging bits of metal <laughs> when you're on an old analog cell phone call yeah. when they, which isn't too good. Um, and so, yeah, this this was this was working on some of the stuff that's kind of in the backbone of the the GSM network um, as it as it kind of started to roll out. So when I when I started working on the project, so I started working on a project which was something called an AUC, which is an authentication center that deals with um, encryption of the of the data and the calls. Um, it would store information about your SIM card, so it would know, you know, you are you, and then it would have secret keys on it as well uh, that only the SIM card uh, and the network knows. So that's how they can encrypt your encrypt your data. Mm -hmm. And the other one was something called an EIR, an Equipment Identity Register. Um, and what that is basically is just a big database lookup of handsets. Um, now you know you, you might be aware that you can every phone every GSM phone has a unique identifier called an IMEI, International Mobile Equipment Identity. And I think you can you can get this if you want to look at it. You do you type on your add star hash zero six hash and it will come up on the screen what the IMEI of the phone is and it's normally printed somewhere in either inside or on the uh, the SIM tray as well and, and normally on the box that you buy it in um, and. What this equipment uh, identity register allowed you to do was if your handset was stolen, you could call up your network operator and say, hey, my handset's been stolen. Either you or they would know the IMEI. And then you'd load it into this database. So you'd, oft you'd often just use this database as a list of handsets that are not allowed. So that would mean if, if somebody stole your phone and then you reported it and then they tried to use it, it would be blocked and they wouldn't be able to use it on the network. And of course, this is something um, that, that helps prevent theft. So uh, it, it's interesting that the, I, I was working on that back in 1991, and there are there was still you know I still hear nowadays that companies, uh, cell phone companies, are developing technologies to crack down on cell phone crime, and you know they'll be able to blacklist phones. You know this new technology they've come up with or deploying. And it's like it's funny. It's been around since 1991. It's just not many people have been using it really because like why why would the phone network really not want anyone to use a phone on network if on their network if they if they block this handset then you know maybe you'll go to another one that doesn't block it and then they lose the customer but uh that's that's pretty much uh, uh that's the crux of what it does anyway so uh, that those that those are the first two projects i worked on mm -hmm. and uh and then after that i started to move on to the uh the sms stuff the, the right let me let, let's let's underline something. So this is the exact switch over from analog to digital, and so as as digital networks are being set up, part of this means that you know you can send data, um, and so SMS is what a specification that's a, a part of GSM as it rolls out. Do you, do you know anything about the the story of of how SMS as a specification um, came to be? Well, not not so much about how it came to be. Right. So, SMS was was always uh, was part of the GSM standards. So, mm -hmm. 
imagine with all this telecom stuff, there's there's these published standards. Um, nowadays, it's handled by a, uh, an organization called 3GPP. Um, but yeah, they, they publish the standards for how all of these things like these AUCs, EMR, uh, EIRs, and SMSCs work so that the, the communications between them is done in a standard way. So you can take you can take an AUC from one customer and an EIR from another customer and an SMS from another customer, and and they all talk to each other because they're all talking the same language in the middle. So text messaging was um, I don't know if it was in like the original original draft, but by the time I got into it, mm. it was standards were there, and uh, and and obviously we started to develop it. Well, yes. Yeah, so let's let's hear that story. So. Um, you have the distinction of being the first person to, to send an SMS uh, text message. How, how did you come to be that person? And, and tell me what you're working on as you're, you're deploying SMS. Right. So, yeah. So, so in 1992, I'd been in, I'd been in SEMA group about a year. I'd been working on the, the AUC and AIR. And then I was, uh, I was basically just coding back then. So in 92, I was offered the opportunity to become a designer and design uh, design one of the components that the SMS was going to use. Um, so I helped. So so I designed that. I did some of the implementation as well. And then you know we had there, there was a lot of people on this project. There was like up to 29 people I think it was working on this SMS project. Um, and once everyone had finished their individual components, and there was a, you know, there was an existing platform that we used that we'd taken from the AUC and the EIR, so we were reusing, we were reusing stuff there. And eventually we come to like test all this stuff together. We, we'd, we called it system testing. So we plug everything together, and then you, know, you, you run simulating sending a message, and then you simulating what the network is responding with, and then testing all the software. And so I, I was really keen to get involved in the testing of that because it was, you know, it would expand my knowledge of all of the other components, and it was, uh, it was just, it was just good fun, good fun doing that. I mean, that was, those, those were some glory days. We used to work, we used to work all kinds of hours. That was, that was back in the days of, uh, of paid overtime. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when, you, when you're 22 years old, and someone's saying, you know, you can come in and work a weekend and work another three or four hours each night during the week and get paid for it, and get free pizza because <laughs> you're working you know you're working an extra four hours or something like that there was there, sometimes there was like a dozen of us there a weekend you know i i remember we we spent many a night and a weekend in there and uh you know we really we really tested the heck out of that stuff and eventually um the first customer for this was well they were paying for the development for it was vodafone in the uk mm-hmm. And somebody said, like, uh, they, they kind of asked for volunteers to go down to Vodafone to install the software down there, plug it into their network. And Vodafone had very strict um, integration and compliance procedures. So in the, in the telecoms world back then, there was, a, there was a telecommunications kind of protocol, the way things connect up and talk to each other called, uh, you know, we're all aware of things like of Ethernet today and TCP IP. Mm-hmm. But, Back in the telecoms world, back then there was something called SS7, signaling system number seven, and it was kind of like a, a slow, clunky kind of telecoms uh, communication standard at the hardware and the software level. And so we had like these brand new, these new computers, plugging them into their network, and Vodafone hadn't done this before with with, with this particular type of software and hardware. 
So they needed to first of all test that this this signaling this signaling system between our computers and their network wasn't going to bring down the rest of their network. So they did some testing of this uh, this SS7 interface, and then eventually I installed the um, the SMS software on the on on the machines. There was two machines back then, kind of a, a larger one and a smaller one, and so I had I had volunteered to go down there. Um, to help set up the the software and test it with Vodafone, and you know, one of the bonuses for me as well was that I I used to go to the office in Reading, and then I used to have to uh, to drive down to Newbury in Berkshire, which I think was about twenty or thirty miles or something like that, and I used to be able to use my boss's company car, which was which back in the nineties was quite a quite a fancy sports car, so I used to come to the office and get to hammer his uh, his uh, Cavalier SRI down that down the motorway. At, mm. Probably speeds I shouldn't talk about, but uh, it was you know again you're 22 years old you had free pizza and you get to drive your boss's car so you know that was a, that was an added bonus, um, and so eventually I'd, I'd been down there we'd been testing it for quite a few months and uh, it wasn't only me down there I was there quite often there were there were quite a few other people that were down there or I was down there testing with other people three or four people there sometimes and. Uh, yeah, so well, I guess that takes us up to the point where we've we finished testing it and uh, and it seems to work. <laughs> so right, and so the the obvious next step is to actually use it in a real world situation. So how is it that you get to be the one to to send the first message? Well, I the way I remember it is that I was just down there one day and um, someone kind of taps me on the shoulder and says, "We want you to send a message to this person." Um, his is, uh, we're going to do it later. He's going to be at the Vodafone Christmas party. Um, and so it's like, you know, yeah, okay. You know, I, I, I didn't think anything more of it mm-hmm. than that. Um, so then I went and, uh, I went and sat in the machine room because back then we were just testing in these big kind of like, I guess now you'd, you'd liken them more to server rooms, kind of like lots of noise, lots of air conditioning, cold, you know, really dry air because there's all the, uh, the switching equipment in there and that often gets quite hot. So I'm, we're sitting in there, and I've got a bunch of guys around me in suits on their mobile phones, and you know someone gives me the, the bit of paper with the uh, the mobile number, and uh, I think someone says send Merry Christmas. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure where mm. whose idea that was, and they kind of like gave me the nod to um, to send this message. So back back with that original version of of the SMS uh, system we had and the handsets that were available, the handsets didn't yet support sending a message from the handset. So I had to sit at the computer and we had like uh, an interface on that where you could type in the uh, the mobile number and the message and then send it from there. So someone kind of like gave me the thumbs up to send the message at, at one point and then kind of like they're all on their phones and there's probably a, probably a bit of quiet for a while, you know, while it's going through and then... Mm-hmm. And then someone, you know, people giving me the thumbs up and it's like all good. And then, you know, so I'm thinking, okay, oh, well, that's good. It worked. And, you know, then I probably went and got some lunch or something like that. And I didn't think didn't think that much of it, really. I didn't think much about it. For me, what was important that, you know, we had, we had been contracted to develop this system for Vodafone. We'd made it work. And then we'd demonstrated, demonstrated that it worked uh, that day. Um, did so you, did you just, get confirmation? Like, did the guy come back from the party and say, hey, I got the message? 
No, no, he didn't. But they, 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 these other people in the room told me that he got it because obviously they're talking to people in the room the other end. Uh-huh. I, this day, I still don't know where they are. All I heard is that they're in a hotel on the other side of Newbury having some Vodafone Christmas party. I should <laughs> find out one day when it was. But, but yeah, for, it, for me, all, all it was was like, that's great, it worked. You know, we've done our job. Um, you know, and I was kind of, I was kind of happy in my day then. That's that. That's all I really. Uh, that's all I really got out of it at the time. And the and the message was Merry Christmas. It was Merry Christmas. Yeah. Yep. Well, <laughs> you, you know, I can, I can. <laughs> I can if if you put yourself back in that time, I can see like well, that's not that's not ever going to be a big deal. I almost feel like um, you know reading some of the articles like there was skepticism like why would you need a messaging system if you've got a phone? If you need to talk to someone, just just ring them up, right? Right. Well, those that was back in the days where people had pages and mobile phones, mm. and so the thinking was is that you can get rid of the pager, you can just have one device clipped to your belt. So that was that was you know it was ultimately to replace a pager I think uh, at the beginning, and then it it, it it grew on a life of its own. So actually, you know, having you you get every decade or so you you uh, get contacted by people like me saying uh, you know it's the ten year anniversary, twenty year anniversary. Like just on a personal level, are you always just you know surprised that that messaging became something that's probably more important than calling now even? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, I back then, I didn't get my first cell phone until maybe three or four years after that. Um, I didn't, you know, even though, you know, back then in the, uh, what was that? That was about 90, was 91 I sent the first, no, 92 I sent the first message. So maybe like 94, 95, I got, I got my first phone. And not many of my other friends had one, I guess. And, you know, maybe you'd message them because by then the phones could send send messages from the phones directly. But, you know, you still only, you know, I guess I thought it was a good use. It's just things like, I'm going to be late to the pub or, you know, I'm on my way or something like that. It's, that's, that's pretty much what I, I started using it for. And to be honest, it's pretty much what I use it for today, really. I'm not a, I'm not a big text consumer. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm, I'm fairly dull when it comes to that. Do you have kids? Yeah, I've got three kids. So, so are they heavy texters? No, they're not. They have, they don't have phones yet. They're only uh, gotcha. six, nine, and ten at the moment. So, you know, they every every Christmas or birthday they put they put a phone on their their list, and then you say, "What do you want to do with it?" And it's like, uh, don't know, listen to music. Uh, <clears throat> I want to text my friends or, or something like that. But you know, we we've hooked them up with 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 chats online. You know, so they'll use. Uh, like uh, Google Chats or Facebook Chat to chat to a couple of their friends, you know, mm-hmm. supervised. But uh, it's just, not many of their friends have phones either. Certainly, not, you know, my oldest is ten, and you right. know, I don't, sometimes they say my friend's got a phone, but all it means is is that the parents given them their old phone and they play games on it. Or something. It's it's not a phone. <laughs> you know. Well, like, and and we have to wonder by the time they are old enough to have their own phones. Would they even be using SMS? I mean, that's sort of going the way of of you know WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and all that stuff. Yeah, you got, I I wonder as well because I grew up with it, and a lot of people grew up with it, and I still I still use it today. I mean, my my wife has a cell phone, but she doesn't have a data plan. So when she's on the bus, and I'm trying to say, what time you you know do I pick you up? I I, I text her because. 
she's got no data. It's the only way I can get hold of her. And you know, I know other people without without data plans as well. There's so many there's so many hotspots around these days that a lot of people can get away with it. And if as long as people know that you know, hey, he hasn't he or she hasn't got a data plan, I'll text them in this situation because I don't know where they are. Then you know, it's it still works because you think about most of the other messaging. It without a data plan, it doesn't work. WhatsApp, Skype, Facebook Messenger, Google Chats, it all. It all relies on SMS. Uh, it all relies on data, and if you don't have that, you know, SMS is pretty much the only thing that does work. Well, um, Neil Papworth, uh, hopefully, <laughs> when they're old enough that you, they can send at least one or two, so you can say uh, your old dad did that <laughs> was the first one to do that. But um, thank you so much for uh, uh, remembering that story for us and um, preserving the story of that that first message uh, for posterity. Oh, well, you're welcome. Uh, I hope texting keeps going for a long time. I hope it's uh, hope to keep the legacy going. Like you say, maybe even just to make sure my kids use it, at least once. <laughs> if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.